Hello and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Bentley Kaplan. Mike is taking a little breather this week, which is great. We need to keep him fresh through these long weeks of lockdown and to give him some room to hone his budding sourdough skills. We're going to start today's episode off with some sizzling hot takes with Yurgita Balasite and Leslie Swingado on how COVID-19 could be slicing into some vulnerabilities in the medical tourism and meatpacking industries. And then we'll dive a little deeper into an issue that predates the COVID-19 crisis, if you can even remember that far back. Deforestation. It's been six long years since the New York Declaration on Forests was launched at the UN Climate Summit. Now, one of the goals of this declaration was to halve global deforestation by 2020 and stop it altogether by 2030. And a bunch of companies stepped up to the promise plate and put out some shiny targets to end deforestation in their supply chains as soon as 2020. To see how successful some companies have been in meeting those noble targets, Jingmin Hu from our Shanghai office will join me to crack open the juicy details of a paper that she recently co-authored with the formidable team of Yuki Shibano and SK Kim. Mini spoiler, the results are a little sobering. And finally, to continue our global tour of how the coronavirus is shaping up on the ground, we'll hear from our green bonds guru, Meghna Mehta, who'll tell us about life in India. Thanks for sticking around. Let's do this. Now, a lot of people's travel plans got messed around by the coronavirus, right? Holidays, businesses, spring breaks, but also another kind, medical tourists. I'm joined now by Yurgita Balasite from our Hong Kong office, who has just done some work looking at how the coronavirus is squeezing the medical tourism industry in Southeast Asia. So Yurgita, thanks for joining. First up, what are we talking about here? Is this like me booking a trip to Thailand for some scuba and cocktails and then just kind of throwing in some calf implants for the fun of it. So it's a bit of a phenomena that has been coming up over the past few years. Commonly, when you think of medical tourism, as you mentioned, you think of all these beautifying procedures. But actually, a lot of the medical tourists, they're traveling for more serious surgeries, such as heart bypass or knee replacement IVF treatment and things like that, either more cost effective or the quality is better outside of their home countries. The international spending was globally about 11 billion US dollars, and there was a, like a 9% annual growth from 2000 to 2017. Okay, okay. Well, that's a, that's a fair bit of growth there. Now, of course, travel bans would have killed off you know, some of that growth and definitely some of the sort of baseline revenue. Now, in other industries, we've seen adaptation as these companies sort of try and paper over the COVID cracks. Are hospitals that are dependent on international travelers doing something similar? A number of these hospitals started moving already last year into this digital healthcare uh, using technologies to expand their range of services. When coronavirus outbreak occurred, a number of these uh, hospitals reported a significant increase of these online offerings. So some of the hospitals launched COVID patients, like some guidance and consultations on how to go for this quarantine period, like COVID-19 testing kits with the ability to get them done at home and, and, and things like that. Well, I suppose as a consumer, I can kind of get behind that general idea. A home coronavirus test at first blush seems like a win. 
But we covered hospitals a while back on our hacking episode, and a hospital is a really great target for hackers, and especially now given their high patient loads. If you suddenly ramp up online offerings and consultations, the type and volume of data out there just shoots up, you know, for a hospital. Are, are these medical tourism hospitals ready to sort of handle that, that new risk? One of the key elements for ensuring that those data security breaches don't happen, we look at what kind of employee training those hospitals provide to their staff. And actually, there is very little evidence of specifically on the training related to data privacy and security. So we see as um, potential threats related to the, the nature of human error. Yikes. Okay, well, it sounds like there may be a fair bit of catching up to do on the cybersecurity front before I'm comfortable enough to start resuming my Botox treatments in Thailand. But I suppose it's almost fitting that the, the weakness in these hospitals is primarily the human component of its workforce. Because as more of the COVID-19 story is written, we're seeing more and more that a lot of it is about people and how central they are to so many businesses. Whether it's customers or workers or athletes or entertainers, the coronavirus has shone a light on the human thread running through the global economy. Now to continue on this thread, Leslie Swingado joins us from lockdown in Frankfurt. It's been a busy week for Leslie because she covers meatpacking companies. And if you're in the US and you eat meat, these are dark days indeed. In a relatively concentrated sector, giants like Tyson Foods have been hit with thousands of employees testing positive for COVID-19 across multiple facilities. And by closing these facilities to try and get things under control, the company looked to be disrupting national meat supplies. And then by declaring meatpacking as a critical infrastructure, an executive order compelled these facilities to keep running. Leslie, it seems like a crazy time to be packing and selling meat there's a lot about COVID-19 that has been unpredictable, but if we take a look back, sort of pre-February 2020, before the crazy rally hit, was there anything about the industry that may have rung some ESG warning bells for you? The current crisis, to me, has really amplified uh, some of the risks that we've been looking at for years. So if you take, for example, worker safety, this has always been an emblematic issue because carving meat in high-speed, highly mechanized and labor-intense processing lines is essentially much more dangerous than any other food manufacturing activities. You know, what we're seeing with COVID-19 is, of course, completely different. It's a new type of threat. But if you have companies with pre-existing poor safety track record and weak labor management culture, broken employee relations, they probably don't have the right channels in place to effectively communicate and implement new procedures with their, with their employees and, and among their workforce. And I would say that it's the same thing with product quality concerns. Uh, this has always been an area of focus for us because meat is much more prone to contamination if you compare it to other food products. And today what we're seeing is that this risk is very much magnified because on one hand, you have a reduced number of staff and on the other hand, you have this big pressure to, to keep producing to feed um, the U.S. citizens. And that could mean reopening processing lines with less staff or less experienced staff. And in some cases, even operate at fat, faster speeds to maintain or increase the outputs. Right. So it's a bit of a perfect storm then with workers down, concerns over quality and then potentially trying to increase production. While all of this is going on, there's a bit of a micro industry that might be sniffing an opportunity, right? Companies producing meat alternatives, like Beyond Meat. Do you think there's maybe room, or if this is a good time for companies like that, to take up some of the market share from the meat meat companies? The growth of meat alternatives is 
kind of part of a pre-existing trend towards healthier food. We've been observing, observing for several years now. The crisis could be a tipping point to attract a much larger and more mainstream part of consumers. And the main driver for that could be the price here. Because historically, meat alternatives have been more expensive than traditional meat. But with COVID-19 and the, the current shortage uh, that we're facing, uh, we'll sell meat prices have increased and companies such as Beyond Meat are, are really trying to capitalize on, on this and they are currently offering additional uh, discounts. But I think we need to be cautious because generally new diet and lifestyle takes a very long time to be adopted by societies. Um, plus we, we've seen very contradictory trends over the last few weeks with both natural and healthy foods being boosted by the lockdown situation. Why? Because people are actually taking more time to cook, uh, you know, with their family members, with their children. But in the same time, we've also seen that they, they are turning to some longer chef and very processed food um, as the stockpile in case the, the crisis uh, lasts for, for months and months or even a year. All right, all right, I get that. It's hard to say whether anything happening in this crazy pandemic is going to materialize into a trend with, with legs. Uh, and when it comes to food, I personally have been flip-flopping between raw organic vegetables to sort of boost my immune system and greasy, cheesy carbs to soothe my stress levels. But maybe there is something to be said for the very different way that meat alternative companies are making their products and how they can be more flexible in responding to sudden changes. At the end of the day though, being able to drive that flexibility into a company's operations or into its supply chain is not always that easy. Even if you've been working on that for several years instead of a few chaotic COVID-filled months. Working on something like, say, ending deforestation. So I know it's difficult to do, but try and remember that there was actually a world before the coronavirus. A world full of aspirations and optimism. And one aspiration that was gaining momentum was to stop deforestation to find ways of protecting pristine forests and using existing plantations more sustainably. Now, stopping deforestation is about much more than just letting our conscience rest easy. Forests sustain livelihoods of millions. They support biodiversity, they purify the air and water, and they act as a carbon sink, which has helped to slow the approach of climate change. Forests, for our survival, are a no-brainer. And whether it's to harvest timber or clear land for crops or cattle ranching, forests have been taking a beating. The WWF puts the number at around 18 million acres per year of forest that we're losing, or to put it more tangibly, 27 soccer fields per minute. So it makes sense that companies that rely on forests and their products are looking to improve and are setting targets to eliminate deforestation from their supply chains, whether of their own volition or under pressure from consumers, NGOs and governments. To sense check these targets, Jingmin Hu, Yuki Shibano, and SK Kim delved into just one of the barometers for deforestation, and that's palm oil. Jingmin joined me to walk through some of their key findings and what it means for investors that want to start cranking the levers for change. So Jingmin, always great to catch up with you. Now, first up, why palm oil? Palm oil is really widely used. Maybe people just don't recognize it, but it exists in products like ice cream, chocolate, and also those vegetable cooking oil. In fact, um, both packaged foods and also um, household personal products take up the chunk 
of the top 50 palm oil buyers universe. And also palm oil has been type of biofuels that companies have been looking at for alternative energy. Actually, that's the reason why we have been experiencing the surging demand for the commodity in the last decade. Okay, so even though there are a bunch of different products or commodities that are linked to deforestation, palm oil has had this massive growth because of its versatility. You can use it for just about anything. But reading your paper, it also looks like palm oil was a good asset test for deforestation commitments by companies because there are a decent number of certification systems. I mean, you need a way to actually measure or verify if a company is benefiting from deforestation or not, right? So basically, there are many standards and Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil is one of the most recognized by companies and also uh, different stakeholders. But not every standard is equal within a roundtable on sustainable palm oil. For example, the standard, which is called book and claim, it does not ensure traceability at all. And it only funds sustainable production of palm oil. Basically, um, it means nothing. Whereas identity preserved and segregated certifications, they require the certified uh, palm oil being grown by producers uh, who are annually audited against the RSPO standards. But of course, we will still have criticisms from NGOs in terms of the strictness of auditing process. So there's no standard that is considered uh, perfect. Got it. Okay. So the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil then, as far as I understand it, is not perfect. And it has had its fair share of criticisms, but at least it compels companies to start disclosing something about the proportion of their palm oil certified to different standards. And that gives investors or researchers like you something to work with. So in your paper, you basically picked the two most stringent standards under the RSPO and said, okay, if companies have palm oil certified to these standards, we can feel pretty sure that at least this specific palm oil is not driving deforestation. So then you looked at the trend over time for how much of a company's total palm oil was getting certified to those standards to see if they are anywhere close to meeting their deforestation goals. Now, cue drumroll, what did you guys find? According to our analysis, only 27 of the top 50 buyers have started to source either identity-preserved or segregated sustainable palm oil and has historical data. Even at present, not so many companies have benchmarked to the most stringent standards. And according to our analysis, Unilever has experienced the widest gap between its current purchasing volume of identity-preserved or segregated palm oil um, and the targeted volume to meet a zero deforestation commitment in 2020 in terms of the bias. The same goes for producers. If we check producers' data, the best performer, Bungi, could be able to achieve this target by 2021 and Wilma by 2025. It is unlikely that uh, investors can avoid uh, deforestation risks uh, as long as they invest in any consumer staples companies with any ties um, uh, with palm oil. The complex supply chain makes it very difficult to achieve that. A plausible way for investors to address the deforestation risks could be engagement 
to ask companies whether they, for example, could have a deforestation policies and also whether they have certification targets related to the most stringent certifications that I mentioned, whether they have programs or measures in place to ensure traceability to plantations. Right, right. So, so in terms of the likelihood of companies meeting their deforestation goals, things are looking pretty grim. And remember, this is just for palm oil, right? Where there is data and certifications, but for all the other industries causing deforestation through other products, we have much less to go on, which means less data to ground truth a company's glossy targets. But as Jingman points out, it's about finding the pressure points in the value chain. Even though palm oil buyers like Unilever or Mondelez have less power than the few big producers, they can drive change. When one of the biggest sellers of palm oil, IOI, lost its RSPO certification, it lost very big customers. So depending on their preferred approach to divest or engage, investors can apply the same kind of pressure by holding companies accountable to their own targets. Now before we round off this episode, we're going to continue our tour of the COVID-19 globe to get a taste from our awesome analysts about what things are like in the countries they're working from or even just their local neighborhood. Meghna Mehta joins me from her home in Mumbai. When she's not getting nagged for podcast soundbites, Meghna is deep into the world of green bonds and the sustainable development goals. Now Meghna, I think a lot of us are watching India mainly because it's just such a huge country and small changes in healthcare policy or interventions could have a massive impact. You're already a month into a very strict lockdown. How are you, how are you coping? What's it like? Just I just miss office, you know. I just miss like uh, the whole formal atmosphere there. And um, at home, I'm just in my PJs all the time, which is also annoying. <laughs> Beyond that, I like I really miss just you know like I can't go and visit my parents. I can't visit um, my grandmother. We can only go out to buy groceries from shops that are close by. In that sense, that's a little annoying. But you know, I mean, these these are first world problems, right? That I'm talking about. I mean. Uh, there are there are people in such dire situations uh, in terms of the migrant workers who were really in the city just for work, you know, just for construction related work, and they're struggling to to find their way back home. There's no transport. Oh man, that that sounds tough. And I mean, there are of course so many stories like that across the world, you know. But India is is such a resourceful country. Have there been some examples of how companies or, or in people themselves have, have innovated or adapted to try and help or keep going as the coronavirus runs its course? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, there's this auto manufacturer here, um, it's called Mahindra. They're actually making ventilators now for hospitals. There are also local companies that are, you know, especially in perfumes and the alcohol business that are now making hand sanitizers. You know, what I found really interesting is we have this food delivery app called Swiggy and it really delivers from restaurants to your home. You know, that's the business model. And in this time, a lot of the restaurants are shut. So like that business has this innovative model where, you know, you can pay them and they'll pick up food from your house and they deliver it to your relative's house for a fee. You know, I thought this was a really good idea for, especially for people who have older parents that they can't visit or, you know, just vulnerable, you know, relatives. You can just send them food and, you know, it's perfect. And that is it for the week. A massive thanks to Jingmin and Yurgita and Leslie and Meghna 
for their take on the news with an ESG twist. For me, it's been a timely reminder that there are long-running challenges that need conquering, and that even though the COVID moment that we're stuck in can feel overwhelming, at the same time, wherever you look, there are clear signs of how resourceful, innovative, and resilient people can be. And these people are in houses, their customers, their employees, their CEOs, their investors. So hang in there, there is plenty to be hopeful about. Thank you very much for tuning in. Keep those chins up. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this. All and any feedback is just great for us. It helps us get better and to get you what you really want to hear. Don't forget to hit that old subscribe button. Thanks again. And one more time, wash those hands. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.